This morning we are studying 2 Corinthians. We are on, I believe, verse 3. We did verses 1 and 2 last week. We talked about the church, about what it, what it meant for Paul to be an apostle and why he's uniquely an apostle and what his credentials as an apostle were. That he had seen the resurrected Christ and that he'd been called as one untimely born. And we discussed that last week. Now, uh, oh, I gave you an assignment, didn't I? This was pretty, I, frankly, it's a very, very easy assignment because uh, I said to go look for repeated words and phrases in the next seven or eight verses and try to see if you can see any themes. So before I say anything, who found themes? Anybody? Couple? <laughs> Here, hold on. Take a guess. <laughs> Let's see how your uh, exegetical skills are doing. No, real limited so far, but comfort and affliction. Okay, there's comfort and affliction, absolutely. Um, notice uh, what I do, uh, and this is a, this will work for you, for you um, is I, if you have a computer Bible, I print out the verses with about two or three inches of space between each verse. I've been doing this since the late 80s when I had a computer and a printer and a, and a computer Bible. And I actually circle the words with a certain color. I got all these colors. And so here I, I circled comfort, comfort in black. Comfort, 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 comfort. So it's kind of a no-brainer. If you get that one wrong, you're not reading very carefully. Okay. And then I have circled uh, suffering, affliction in green. Suffering, suffering, affliction, affliction. And then as it goes on, he starts talking about life and death. And deliverance from death. And um, so that's how you find themes. Now, sometimes it's not as obvious, depending on uh, the reason I like it. Well, there's a lot of reasons I like a literal Bible translation. But one of the reasons I use the New American Standard is it's about as literal as you can get. Okay? And very literal. And it's, I think it's readable. It was based on the ASV of 1901, which is really literal. In fact, the ASV is so literal... It never caught on in any churches because it's almost hard to read. It follows the Greek so closely, and Greek isn't constructed like English is. And so when you follow the word order and things, it's like, oh, man, it's hard to read. So what the New American Standard did was take the idea of the ASV of a very literal Bible and make it what? Just a simple thing. Would you define literal? Because it's got a few little okay. pieces of baggage. Okay, yeah, literal means... That you try to uh, use the English phrase that would most accurately describe the meaning of the Greek. Okay, um, th- th- uh, there's another way of doing it. In fact, there's three things that, that go on. Literal would be try to give the same meaning. And see what the New American Standard does that I like is if it translates a certain Greek word, comfort, in one verse. It'll keep translating it comfort, at least most of the time, unless it sees another range of meaning for that Greek word, and there would be a better English word. And it also translates uh, uh, tenses, so uh, very literally. I found that out in the 70s when I was doing a lot of study. In other words, if there's a perfect tense, and the New American Standard translates the perfect tense a certain way into English, it'll keep doing that. So it gets to the point where I can predict what the Greek's going to be just reading New American Standard. But it isn't just word for word for word. If you ever got an interlinear Bible, you could see, you know, interlinear is word for word for word. But you, if you just follow the interlinear, you couldn't make that into a sentence in English most of the time. Because it just doesn't work that way. But the other idea is the dynamic equivalent, and that's, um, uh, that is used quite regularly in, say, the NIV. And the idea of that dynamic equivalent is that the words, the English words may not be what you'd normally translate that Greek word into, but the concept that the translators believed was being um, discussed or, or being put forth by the writer in Greek or Hebrew is taken. And then in that concept becomes a phrase in English. The famous one in the NIV that's been discussed for years is, are they correct when they translate sarks, which means flesh, sinful nature? They translate it sinful nature. 
They say that's the meaning. And, and that may very well be, in, in, but not in every case. Whereas the New Maker Standard translates it flesh. And you have to learn what that theological concept is. So the, so the New American Standard would be more literal because sarks is flesh, but uh, the, the NIV is giving you what they believe the concept is in the mind of the writer, Paul, sinful nature. Now, you go a step away from that and you go to a paraphrase. The idea of a paraphrase is to say the same thing in different words. Okay? You, you, you would read like a whole paragraph and say, okay, what, what, what's that? How can I put that in different words? And then you put it in totally different words. But it, for a paraphrase to be even valid, it has to preserve the meaning. Now, when I criticized the Message Bible in my, in my book, I have a chapter about misused Bible translations and I criticized the Message Bible. And one of my criticism was, it's not even really a paraphrase. In, in some of these cases, not in every single verse, but in particularly the ones used in that uh, Purpose Driven Life book, the verses quoted in there, you can show again and again and again, don't even preserve the meaning. And see, now, if you don't preserve the meaning, you don't have the Bible anymore. You're claiming authority for something that's not there. There's no authority for some different meaning than what the biblical author had in mind. Now, if... The living Bible claims that it preserves the meaning. Well, it does in some cases. But even at that, I remember the living Bible came out when I was in Bible college. And we were told, this Bible is for, let's say you have a coffee house, which was a big thing back then. We had coffee houses that would reach out with the gospel. And there's some people coming in there that really have only had a junior high education or they don't, they're not very literate. They may be able to read this Bible. Okay. But it's not for preaching, it's not for doing theology, it's not for doing serious study. Okay? And I think even the producers of the Living Bible would say that. Well, now, what, what's happened is we have a Bible worse than that, the message, which isn't even a valid paraphrase in many, many cases, and it's being used by pastors from their pulpits. Now, talking about dumbing down, I mean, that's really dumbing down. And what happens when you do that is that these, like here, like what we're doing, we're studying this and we're finding the theme. Comfort, 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 comfort. And I'm going to look into the Greek and help you understand it even more, better. I mean, even better, uh, what that, the range of meaning of the Greek and how it alludes to Old Testament. So you take that away, you take it out of the pulpit, and you just have this sort of loose idea that's sort of like what the Bible says. That doesn't have power. It doesn't hit people. The Word of God hits us right between the eyes. Amen. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And the more powerfully the Word's taught, it changes us. It comforts us. It encourages us. It corrects us. It does what we need. When I come up with some loosey-goose paraphrase that's not even close and throw out a few verses and then tell human wisdom, that doesn't have the power to change anybody's life. So that's why I won't use that. Now, um, Comfort, which is obviously the theme, because it's repeated over and over. Uh, the word from the, in the Greek translate comfort, parakaleo, to call alongside, has a range of meanings in the Bible. And you can do your own range of meaning studies. And uh, in a good Bible college, that's an assignment. You'll have to learn how to do that. Or a good seminary, you'll have to learn how to do a range of meaning study. I had a teacher, an Old Testament teacher, who wanted to show us how to do that in the Old Testament. And so he gave us a, a Hebrew word that's used like five different ways in the Old Testament. Hebrew words have bigger ranges of meaning than the Greek words, uh, for whatever reason. I mean, they can have a huge range of meaning. And he said, here's this word. Look up, you know, I don't know, there was like ten different times it was used. And tell me what it means in this one particular verse. Now, you can use uh, tools. There's this theological word book of the Old Testament that gives you the range of meanings and tell you what it means in each of those verses. But my professor said, you can't always trust somebody else's work. Do your own. So he gave us one, and I did my study, and then I looked it up in a theological word book, and I turned in my assignment. And I said, I think the theological word book is wrong. Here's what the word means. I got an A on that, Simon. 
He purposely gave us one where, the, where it was wrong to see if we were learn how to think for ourselves. So now the way you do a range of meaning study, you can do it with a strong, you can do it with books. But if you got a computer, that's ten times better. It's like doing it with books compared to doing it with a computer is the difference between riding a bike or having a, a sports car. <laughs> okay. Um, because if you do, uh, you can use a Strong's Recordance and look up Strong's numbers and you can find out all the verses and then you dig around and try to figure, you know, books. And you have piles of books open before you finally get it all done. I take a computer and go, click, click, there it is. I can click twice and I can have every verse in the New Testament that a certain Greek word is used. And then I can right-click on the reference and it'll put the verse up. And I, can, I, can, I can do a range of meaning study depending on how many times the word is used, sometimes in less than five minutes with a computer. And I'd be all afternoon with books. So I should sell software. I think I could get rich. <laughs> so <clears throat> let me tell you how, how, how you how you do this, though, if, whether you have the computer or whether you have the books. You find what the Greek word is. Now, you can do it with Strong's numbers. You find every time that word's used in the New Testament. Now, in some cases, it may be 300 times, and that's, then you've got to narrow down. Uh, you know, you can't check every last one of them most of the time. It's going to take too long. But a lot of them are used 10, 20, 30 times or whatever. And then you look up each verse where the same Greek word is used. And you use the context to determine what the author meant. The context is the best way to, to learn meaning, is context. All right? I, I remember when I took hermeneutics uh, with Dr. Stein, uh, our, one of our first assignments was the word peace as used in Romans 5. He said, here's the word peace, irene in the Greek, Romans 5. Go home and study it and come back and tell me what it means in Romans 5. Well, the word peace has a fairly good-sized range of meaning. And, what it, and people get it wrong. And it talks about having peace with God in Romans 5. And what, what they do when they get it wrong, they think that it means having a warm, fuzzy feeling. In other words, peace means serenity. Okay? And so I have peace with God. That means now I have a serene outlook or, or on life. But that's not what it means in that context. Peace can also mean resolution of conflict between enemies. Somebody look up Romans 5. Robert, you got the mic. Why don't you do it? <laughs> and then Larry, we'll, we're, I'm going to get to you. Romans 5, just read like the first four or five verses. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, well, go a couple more verses. For while we were still helpless at yeah. the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. One more. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Yes. So the, the, the topic and the theme in Romans 5, and it goes on and talks about the blood atonement after that. The theme was reconciled sinners that are reconciled to a holy God. Okay? And so when I turned in my assignment at Dr. Stein's class, I said peace means uh, that enemies have been reconciled. And that was it. I got, a, I got an A on that too because that was the correct answer. Now... You learn that from the context, okay? Not just looking up in a, in a dictionary. You know, the mistake people make when they start using some of these tools that we have now, because it's, it's so accessible, so easy to look up the Greek, and even if you never learn Greek, you can still do it. Now, uh, the mistake is, oh, I know what the Greek word is, so therefore I know the meaning in every single case. That's not true. You don't know that about the English. You don't know that about the word love, or the word hate, or the word bad. Bad can mean undesirable, or bad can mean good. In slang, that's, ba that's a bad car. 
And, and, and so the context gives you the meaning, yes. Oh, then Larry, I'm sorry, Larry. You remember what you were going to say? Yeah. Uh, in your range of meaning understanding, how does that run counter to what is known in theological circles as uh, the rule of first mentioning, where, it, you know, where it's first mentioned, the understanding carries throughout Scripture? Um, first mention... Sometimes, I don't know if that's universally true. It's amazing in Genesis how it does seem to be true. Uh, he was talking about sometimes you find that first mention and then it sets a theme that carries on. I'm going to talk about that when I preach in Genesis today, as a matter of fact, themes that in Genesis you find in Revelation. But it's not necessarily a hard and fast rule of grammar because a word can be used in a certain way the first time it's mentioned and used and still have a range of meanings that are quite different in other contexts. Always, the number one rule of hermeneutics is context. It's like the real estate. Three things you need to know, location, location, location. Three things you need to know about interpreting, well, any literature, but particularly the Bible. Context, context, context. It rules supreme. Okay. Uh, one of the things you'll find with of meaning is if you talk to some of the people that are in the different cults, they will take you to the range of meaning literature, and they will pick out the one that fits their agenda rather than with the context. Will do. Yeah, you can misuse any tool. And, uh, you know, one of the things, we were talking about this earlier. I was talking with uh, Kevin and, um, and Laurie, right, Laurie? Yeah, I was talking to Kevin and Laurie um, about, they were asking about Rick Warren. And one of the things I said was that what I, what I think is sets a really bad precedent is when you know what the meaning is and you don't care. Or you tell some other meaning. See, then you're not being legitimate. Uh, and that's what cults do. See, meaning is determined by the author, not by the reader. Amen. Meaning is determined by the author. Now, the meaning of the Bible is determined by the Holy Spirit-inspired author. Somebody, uh, let, let me give you an example. We did this on the radio. We, I think, yeah, we were talking, Dick and I were doing a radio show on that article about Mars Hill. And I was pointing out in my article that Paul in Galatians anathematized people for being Judaizers and demanding that people be circumcised and keep the law. But in Acts, we found two instances where Paul did the very thing he anathematized in Galatians. Uh, he had Timothy circumcised, and Paul took a Nazarite vow and went through ritual purification and went into the temple. And so in my article, I said either Paul was a hypocrite or there's a valid category distinction. And my claim was there's a valid category distinction. He didn't uh, have Timothy circumcised because he believed it was necessary for all believers to be circumcised. He did it for the sake of the gospel to the Jews. And he, and he took the Nazarite vow for the sake of the gospel. But in Galatians, he lays down the rule that um, you can't require believers to keep the Mosaic law because that's not Christ's rule. It's not, it's not authoritative. So I made it, I wrote an article about the gospel to Mars Hill, not Mars Hill into the church. Now, uh, you can read that, but nevertheless, what, what I was pointing out in our radio show was that somebody emailed Keith, who was contending about this, and he emailed Keith and said, well, no, Paul was a hypocrite, and, and he, what he did was a sin. Um, in, in Acts. So here's my response. So Keith sent that to me. So what do you say about that? Authorial intent. We believe the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what we want to know when we read Acts is did Luke believe Paul was sinning? See, there's got to be hint in the text itself that reveals the meaning of the author. So, and when, when in, in Luke Acts, as you read Luke, it's clear when somebody does something wrong or right. For example, Simon Magus tried to buy the Holy Spirit. So what did, how did Luke let us know that that was a bad thing? He told us what Peter said to Simon Magus. You and your money can go to perdition together. Well, that's a little hint that, that was bad. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, how do you interpret Paul's missionary journeys in Acts? It's certainly, Paul's not infallible. It's very conceivable that Paul was sinning. But did Luke write Acts in such a way to give us a clue that we're supposed to believe Paul was sinning? Well, no, he did not. There was no hint anywhere that what Paul did was a bad thing. Not nobody around said it was a bad thing. 
And the only people that didn't like what he was doing was the enemies of the gospel. So there's no grammatical clue. So if you're going to interpret Acts, you've got to say, what did the author mean? So the Holy Spirit-inspired author writes words inspired by the Holy Spirit. The meaning is determined by the author, not the reader. Okay? And that's the big error. That's the emergent church. That's the big error. They they believe the reader determines the meaning. That's the whole debate about postmodern understanding of literature and this whole deconstruction. Deconstruction means the reader determines the meaning. So how in the world can the Bible function as an authority from God when, all, when, when you have three million readers, three million meanings? It doesn't have any power or authority. Uh, Bill, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, would you say that the Bible in that context, is it fair to say that the Bible is self-correcting uh, because of, of the context that one has to look at it? I've heard it said that way. I don't use that phrase I, I, I think your meaning is correct. We're talking about authoria tent. Self-correcting would mean, if you mean this by it, if there was some verse of the Bible that, taken out of context, could possibly lead me astray, if I keep reading, I'll get the true meaning, and there'll be no verse that actually will lead me astray. So, so you, you could call it that. But when we say correcting, it's almost like implying there was an error that gets corrected somewhere. So it would, it would really behoove a Christian to look at the Bible from a historical perspective, because a lot of the meetings uh, in context uh, are from a time past. In the yes, that, and that's why we do historical grammatical analysis in order to learn the meaning of the Bible. For example, in a passage where it says, if, thy, if thine eye be clear, thy whole body is full of light. What does that mean? What does it mean to have a clear eye? Does anybody, have you ever, does anybody ever studied that? Do you know what that means? It was a Hebraic, it means to be generous. Yeah, it was a Hebraic expression. It means to be generous. And and you can show that by going back into the Proverbs where it talks about uh, the evil eye would be you see your brother with a need and you refuse to do anything. Okay, so so the whole, uh, if you look in the context of Matthew, the clear eye was, um, Brian over here? Oh, Kathy and then Brian. The, the clear eye would be being generous. The evil eye would be stingy. Um, so you had to do a study to know that. Uh, when it, you were talking about Abacus by Paul rebuking him, uh, how would that p- fall into the category, category of, the, of the poor man? Which poor man? Well, if your money perishes with you. Oh, you're talking about Peter rebuking... rebuking. Yeah, see, he was... Uh, Simon Magus was motivated by money, and that was a sinful thing, and that's what Peter was rebuking him for. But uh, my point was, you didn't have to guess whether Simon Magus was a good guy or a bad guy. <laughs> okay, Brian. How would you answer the postmodernist? Because um, when you're talking about you might have three million interpretations if you have three million different people reading it, so I know what the response would be. Well, how do you know that your interpretation is the right one? <laughs> You've heard that too. <laughs> I mean, you've been talking to some New Agers <laughs> on a regular basis. <laughs> on a regular basis. In fact, by the way, Brian and I started a radio series Saturday. We got one in the can. We've got a ways to go, but we're going to do a radio series on his book and talk about these issues. Well, the answer is 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 going back to even the debate. If you were at the pageant debate, what I did in my 20 minutes was laid out the idea that words have meaning that words are authoritative and that God uses them to draw boundaries. Because I knew that I was attacking everything he believes because he doesn't believe that. How do you know yours is right? Well, here's... I remember, uh, Brian, I, said, I was sitting in a, a theology class with Dr. Clark and the same discussion came up. And somebody... they were There was all this postmodern talk about words or... You know, you have these hermeneutical communities and they only have meaning within certain cultures and so blah, blah, blah. It goes on. You know, basically, the bottom line is you can't know what the Bible means. So I did the same thing I did in the debate in the class. I pulled out this passage. Jesus says, if, if, there's one who will be your judge in the last day, and that's the words that I have spoken to you. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you don't believe me, my words will judge you. Why? Because he speaks the very authoritative words of God. So I said in the class, if we're going to deny that words can have authoritative meaning and that they can and that they can do so cross-culturally 
and cross-generationally anywhere in the world, if they're translated into people's language, then we're going to deny that there can be any valid judgment in the end. How can God judge people for failing to believe the gospel if it wasn't possible for them to know what it meant? So I brought that up in class with a lot of these, you know, really smart guys. A lot of them went on to get PhDs, and not nobody could refute me. And you know, did you did you hear Paget refute my claim? No. And so so then because he didn't refute me in his rebuttal time, then I went and purposely asked him, "Is there a final judgment?" Um. He wouldn't say. If there's no final judgment, then I guess you don't have to worry about the words of the Bible being your judge in the last day. Okay, so uh, we are arguing that these words... By the way, we've got to actually study these words here. Okay. <laughs> now, that, now that we affirm that they're true, let's find out what they are. Okay, yes. I think a lot of that comes from just the God of the day is relativism. There's no absolute truth. So, like you were saying, Bob... It's if there's if there's no absolute truth, then my interpretation is just as good as any other interpretation right. instead of what God is saying through His Word. Yeah. So to what you just said and what Brian was saying, the answer I give every time is that we are going to face God in eternity, and He's going to be our judge, and He's going to judge us based on the gospel and the words of Jesus Christ. And so you it behooves you to find out what they mean. <laughs> okay? And you're just saying, I might be wrong. Yeah, that's true. Um, Keith uh, called me. He's, he had to fly out. He's going to, I think, to Rome or somewhere. You know, he flew out of the country. New York. That's it. Rome was later. Um, he was telling a story about Karen, who's you know, been in our Sunday school class over the years. Some of you know Karen. She was in a, a, one of these discussions. Did you hear the story, too, about Karen? Was she talking to people with different religions? And so they were kind of a round table. Here's my religion. Here's my religion. And everybody was saying it's sort of relativistic. You have your religion and anybody's religion is as good as anybody else's. So Karen came her turn. She described the gospel and her belief in the Bible and Jesus Christ. And then she said this. If Jesus Christ, if it could be proved that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then I'd quit being a Christian right now. That's what she said. Because my faith is based on something that happened in history before witnesses. And it's not just something in my head. Jesus was really raised. Yeah. I think the table was six Muslim women. Oh, it's Muslims. Yes. Oh, okay. So she was talking with Muslims and she told her about the resurrection. And, and what a great story. She's in Harvard talking to Muslims and she says... Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ that really happened. That's how you know the gospel. It isn't just meanings of, in people's minds. It's something that God did in front of witnesses. And if that can't be validated, we have no gospel. Paul says, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, we're all men most pitied. All right, we've got to study. No. 2 Corinthians 1.3. Now that we did the prolegomena, <laughs> do you know what that means? Easy for me to say. Now, prolegomena in theology is the study you do before you start your study to understand what the rules are. Okay. <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. What a beautiful verse. Absolutely beautiful verse. Oh, we started talking about range of meaning because of this word comfort. Parakalesis or parakaleo, uh, there's a verb and a noun form of it. This word can either mean comfort or encouragement, or exhortation. That's basically the range of meaning, and depending on the context. And I believe that the New American Standard has it right in this context. He's talking about comfort. Because Paul, is, he's talking about himself, by the way, here. He, in Second Corinthians, bears his heart as an apostle about what he's been through and what it means to him. And he's been through horrendous persecution and suffering. And what Paul is saying is that in his distresses, in his afflictions, in his sufferings, verse 5, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort. So in other words, Paul says that in all of the miserable things he went through for the sake of the gospel, there is comfort. And the comfort is twofold. And it is Paul's because 
these sufferings that he is going through were exactly what Jesus told him when he was called in Acts 9. When he was called, remember God talked to this Ananias and said, I will show him what many things he must suffer for the gospel. And so there's a confirmation of the gospel, even in his suffering, and that confirmation is comforting to Paul. There's mercy, there's meaning in suffering. It isn't just empty, uh, uh, gratuitous evil, but there's some suffering that's for the sake of the gospel. And this suffering is giving, giving Paul a message of comfort to other believers. So the comfort is both Paul's and theirs, as he will say in uh, these verses here. Now, this beginning, blessed be God, is a very Jewish thing. There's a Jewish prayer that's said over food, and it starts out with, blessed art thou. And, and so God is declared to be blessed. And there are many, many verses in the Bible. In fact, I have some cross-references on that. But it's a very Jewish thing to bless God. Then he's called God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a Christian confession. The supremacy of Christ is the ultimate authority and uh, and message of the Christian. And he's called the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And uh, some of the scholars believe this is an allusion to Isaiah 40 and verse 1. Where are we at with the mic right now? All right, then we'll... uh, You already did one. Uh, Can you read that Bible? (laughs) <laughs> she's got a smaller print than us young guys Isaiah 40 and verse 1 if you, okay Isaiah 40 and verse 1 <laughs> okay um, uh, comfort ye comfort ye my people saith your God Okay, comfort ye, comfort ye. That's in uh, that's in Handel's Messiah. Absolutely, that's what I was going to say. Handel's Messiah. Now, the scholars say, oh, that's uh, the Septuagint is the same word for comfort as Paul uses here. He may be alluding to it. Now, with my click click, <laughs> I, I go, I go click. Up comes the Septuagint. Sure enough, paracletes, same word. I click the word, up comes a morphology, parses it out for me. I click twice more, up comes the lexicon for the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Isn't that great? I've never seen you so thrilled. I, I, I'm just, I love the Bible. I love the Bible, and I love having the ability to get deep inside the Bible and know what it means and to see what these things are. It's fabulous. So, so this is a, probably an allusion to Isaiah chapter 40. Now, Isaiah 40 is is uh, uh, a very important passage, yes. And if you read on in Isaiah 40, it talks about that the iniquity is pardoned. Yes. By, um, she has received from the Lord's hand a double um, pardon of her sins. Right. So the comfort is... That your sins are forgiven. That's Denise's great, great comment. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> I, yeah, actually I ended up when I was re- researching this passage and... Second Corinthians, I ended up in Isaiah 40 and seeing that. It's very, very... Uh, it is a, a, the, by the way, Isaiah 40, a lot of Isaiah is written using a literary device called prolepsis, which means to state something to be present when it's yet future in order to make the certainty of it. When I've used that word in the past, I illustrate it with football because everybody's heard this one. You're in the middle of the fourth quarter and now you're down by four touchdowns and you say, the game is over. But the game really isn't over. So that's a prolepsis, or pro- proleptic statement. That means it's stated as present because it's so certain, even though it actually is future. Now, this pardoning of the iniquity of the people of God that's talked about in Isaiah 40 actually doesn't happen until Messiah comes. But Isaiah 40 is introducing the servant of, as it goes on, Isaiah 42, of servant of Yahweh, and then it ends up in Isaiah 53. We find out in Isaiah 53 how God accomplishes it. All right? So the comfort we have, the greatest comfort that God has to offer any, anyone is the comfort that's found in the fact 
that your sins have been forgiven. Amen. Isn't that right? And that's so gospel-centric. You know what's interesting? You, you brought up the whole issue of, of range of meaning for comfort, and you said one of one of the one of the possibilities was exhortation. Yes. And a lot of times, when you're doing word studies, um, it's po- you, you don't always have to say, okay, let's say there's five ranges of meaning. You have to settle on one. Sometimes Paul uses words, and there may be he, he may use and combine certain things of meaning. And I think exhortation can be an underlying element of comfort. I would I think oh, yeah. translating this comfort would be. Well, but within comfort, there's an exhortation to continue. And you see this later in, in verse 6. But if we are afflicted, is is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, is for your comfort. And now let's listen to this. Which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering with which we also suffer. So the comfort is effective. It's an exhortation to continue in the gospel. Yeah. Knowing that we're experiencing the same suffering that the apostles and that the prophets and that Jesus experienced for the gospel of the kingdom. In that regard, that's, that ties in with what we were just saying about Isaiah 40. The reason we have, it's an objective comfort based on facts, not just a feeling. All right? um, you may be on the Titanic and having a steak dinner on the deck and be very comfortable and say, life is good. I'm on a boat that can't sink. I'm cruising the world. I have great accommodations. And this food is wonderful. And you can feel comfortable not knowing it's going to go down. Okay? And so the comfort that we have, as Ryan was saying here, the comfort we have is based on what God has actually done and the reality that our sins are forgiven and that this is effectual. It, it motivates us. It's, it's a real thing. It's not just a state of mind. Uh, having comfort for a state of mind when you're not right with God would be the worst thing you could ever have. We were talking, who was I talking about? Maybe I think Brian, you and I were talking about, did I, did I bring up Luther when we were talking the other day? That's the thing that was amazing about Luther because uh, Brian on our radio show was talking about his past when he grew up Catholic and how everything was just, Duty. Okay, you go on Sundays, but you never had any real hope. It's just this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to show up at mass on Sunday and then get out of there. And and nobody would ever in his story in his book. He ran into Christians, but rarely was anybody giving him objective evidence for the faith. And so he kind of was just in the dark until he actually found the objective evidence at an apologetic seminar that he went to. Now I was saying this. It's the amazing thing about Luther, and probably the best thing about Luther. That, that helped him find salvation was that he couldn't get comfortable. Luther, he just despaired because he felt so sinful and, and he felt so under the wrath of God and he did everything the church said. He tried every version of asceticism, of uh, going through all the sacraments and the rituals. He did everything and he could never escape this horrible idea that God was going to come and judge him because of his sin. Amen. And it was and because of his lack of comfort that he couldn't find, the Lord used that to open his eyes to justification by faith. Amen. And as Esau was reading Romans 1, when he saw that the just shall live by faith, he found comfort in the gospel that the church had none to offer. The church, as he understood it, was work, work, work all your life, and then you probably go to purgatory if you're lucky. But then he found the comfort, true comfort. Well, that's all I felt, but just go on here. I witnessed to a man yesterday, and you know, I was just thinking, talk about these preachers. He's a used car car salesman he was for years. And I says, isn't it funny that a car comes with a warranty? But you know what? Preachers don't come with warranties. You talk about Presbyterian preacher, you know, and the guy alongside me was a Baptist guy, not telling him the gospel. I read him McDonald's, I told him, told him the gospel. But to get back to comfort, the Catholic Church offers comfort. A lot of religions offer comfort. They offer comfort for that baby when you baptize it. They offer comfort at the confessional. They offer comfort, mass confession, at communion. 
They offer comfort at the grave. They're offering temporary comfort. That's what they all offer. Then they offer suffering like Jehovah's Witness. If you suffer, for, none of it's got to do with the complete gospel that Jesus Christ shed his blood and the sins are forgiven. Even the Pentecostals can't deal with it. Past, present, and future. When you're born again, you're born again like he said to Nicodemus into God's family. You haven't done one thing that will redeem your soul. And when you serve God out of love to the day you died, you can live a million years. You haven't done one thing. You've done it out of gratitude, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You will not have no power to testify the gospel unless it comes from the Holy Spirit. Because I sat with many believers scared to death to tell the gospel. Oh, the guy's nice to me. He's real nice to me, so I'm not going to say nothing to him. We're not going to mention judgment. We're not going to mess with nothing. Well, you, that's, you know why you can't say anything? Because unless the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and moves you, because you're out to please the Holy Spirit, not grieve the Holy Spirit. You're testifying what he's done. You're going to die, like I said to the guys at McDonald's. What after retirement? What? I left the whole place here. I didn't care. What are you going to do after your time? You live the life. You've done this. You golf. You have a beautiful wife or family. What then? They're looking at me in the place. I don't care. You need to be redeemed for eternity with <laughs> okay. Jesus Christ. And I'm <laughs> sick of these fake preachers. And he had to admit, they do not come with a warranty. We're an adulterous generation. We went off the deep end. And God says, I turned them over to a reprobate mind because they've given up the knowledge of God. This generation today is terrible. Okay. We need the gospel. Now do you know why we... we now you, so now, I, I know, thank you for preaching on the streets. Now you know why we don't bring the mic over. Don't. <laughs> we, we just kind of allow that to be self amplified. But, you know, it's a good... You know, if you, if you ever get a chance, brothers and sisters, ask Dan about his testimony. You know, when you're just talking to him privately, ask Dan about his testimony. I've had him... I had you shared here, didn't I? Yeah, he, he, he was abused by false religion and almost died. Yes, he, I give all my cash. I, I did everything imaginable for the Catholic Church. Uh, you name it. I had eight tickets to heaven. <laughs> okay. No, all right. All right. Yes. To Mary. And they don't take that lightly. Yeah. I couldn't get there to Mary. Yeah. And so he found the gospel. I, I know you got to keep going, but I just wanted to say really quick, and I can relate to Dan. I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and when you come out of false, I mean, you come out of religion, and you come out of false comforts, and you really find the truth in God's Word, you, you can't help but be as passionate as Dan, and I appreciate it. But I just wanted to say really quick that I, I was able to do a word study. You can correct me if I didn't interpret this right. No, no, that, it's but good I, that you did the word study. <laughs> I have a Hebrew-Greek keyword study Bible, and I'd highly recommend it to anyone. But I did a, a study on comfort, and I found that in the Greek, in the particular passage I was reading, um, the word come in the Greek was with, and fort comes from forte, which is strength, whereas where we get the word fortress. And I thought, that's so true, because the times that the Lord has brought a word of truth to me, what comforted me and gave me strength was his truth. So true comfort is in the true. a true exhortation that brings light into your mind and your soul about God. Yeah, and for the true Christian, the, the comfort is the gospel and that our sins are forgiven. I told the story many times, uh, but forgive me if it's redundant, but Harold Snitzes uh, came to church here the last 15, 20 years of his life. He died in his 90s. And the thing that was remarkable was just before Harold went to be with Jesus, he came the week, I think he died on a Monday, and the Wednesday before he was down here in Bible study. Uh, Dan, Daniel and Judith, God bless them, would go and take Harold and bring him down here, and he wasn't doing so good. But he was in Bible, he was in the Bible study on Wednesday night, three days before he went to be with Jesus. And I remember the last words I remember that I ever heard from Harold Snitsis was this. I failed God in many ways, but it's all under the blood. Amen. <laughs> there was a man who believed in the gospel. And I never really saw Harold fail God. I don't know what you had in mind. I'm sure we all could say that, and it's true. I mean, Harold was an exemplary Christian, but he had the right attitude. Harold didn't say, I served God for 93 years. Now God's going to reward me. Harold says, I failed God many times, but that's all under the blood. Amen. And confessing the blood of Jesus... A few days later, he goes off to be with Jesus. 
So uh, that's, that's where our comfort is, is in the blood atonement. So blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. You can't know the comfort of God if you don't understand that God is a merciful God who forgives sins. Amen. And as uh, we noticed earlier, the, the reference in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort ye my people, was based on the objective fact that sins are taken care of. Sins are pardoned. And the ground for pardon is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, Diane, if you could look up Genesis 14.20 and Denise, Nehemiah 9.5. Do you want to do one? It's optional. (laughs) Okay, what's your name? Fallon. Fallon? Fallon. Psalm 18.46 and Stephan, Ephesians 1.3. I was going to look up a quote. Okay, go ahead when you got it. Genesis 14:20. Yes. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and He gave them a tenth of all. Okay, so that, that's one of those you talk about first use. Blessed be God, and that was it. Uh, that was the Melchizedek thing. Yeah. Okay, blessed be God. Nehemiah 9 in verse 5. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Beni, Hashabanai, a bunch of names. Stand up and bless the Lord for your God forever and ever. I did that on purpose. We usually do that to Diane. That's a joke at the couple's Bible study when we were studying. Whenever there's a cross-reference, Diane gets the one that the names nobody can pronounce every time. So, Denise, you get the honor today. But it said, bless, stand up and bless the Lord, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's another interesting range of meaning study. Uh, uh, barak, a baraka, whatever the word Hebrew for bless is. It's normally the greater blesses the lesser. Okay? So like the patriarchs blessed their children. But when referenced to God, when a man blesses God, how can we bless God if the greater always blesses the lesser? Well, it's used to mean to ascribe to God the blessing and glory and honor that's due His name. It's, it's, it's ascribing who He is. It's very much like when we say in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, or show your name to be holy. May God so work that the holiness of His whole being, because name stands for the whole person in the Hebrew idea, so may God be revealed and shown to be the holy God that he really is. So when, when in the Hebrew prayer, bless God is to ascribe the blessing that attends God as the only true sovereign of the universe and all the character, characters, characteristics and attributes. Okay, uh, Psalm 18, 46. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalt be God by my Savior. Okay. I think in, in a literal one it says, Blessed be God, my Savior. Okay. And then over here for Psalm 72.19. Okay. Do that one then. <laughs> yeah, it was Ephesians 1.3. Sorry. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay. Do you want to look up Psalm 72.19? So, again, in the New Testament, it picks up from what you see in the Psalms. We used to sing some of those. Remember, bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 72.19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Wow. Didn't we sing that too? That's beautiful. May the whole earth be... That combines those two ideas. The, bless, the, the person blessing God in the sense of not giving something that he lacks, because God lacks nothing, but ascribing God's blessed character. And, and it's combined with, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. In other words, may God, hallowed be thy name. May God be seen to be glorious and powerful in all the earth by his acts and his deeds. And the, and the great act that God did to show the holiness of his name was sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. 
and raised Him on the third day. And so when we proclaim the Gospel to the whole world, we're ascribing glory and holiness to God. Amen. Because here is a glorious God who's provided for our salvation. And so that's what it means. Blessed be God, Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Oh, I was going to look up a quote from this uh, Garland. Uh, Ryan, I found a great commentary of uh, David Garland. Yeah. Yeah. I have other ones, but this Garland, I like it so far, at least what I haven't got all the way through. I can usually tell when there's a good commentary. Um, here's what he says, David Garland. For us, the word comfort may connote emotional relief and a sense of well-being, physical ease, satisfaction, and freedom from pain and anxiety. Many in our culture worship the cult of comfort and a self-centered search for ease, but it lasts only for a moment and never fully satisfies. Watson comments that the word comfort has gone soft in modern English. In the time of Wycliffe, the word was, quote, closely connected with its root, the Latin fortis, you were just saying, which means brave, strong, courageous. The comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with a languorous feeling of contentment. It is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pains, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation. God's comfort strengthens weak knees, sustains sagging spirits, so that the one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. Fortress. Fortress. Yeah, Latin. So there you go. Good. You, you get an A in Sunday school. <laughs> <laughs> and so does Denise. <laughs> she, got, she had that one downright on, in Isaiah. Um, I love opening up the Word together. See, my goal isn't just for me to, to lecture. You know, I love studying and preaching. That's for upstairs. I preach the Word, preach the Gospel. But what I want the, the class is for all of you to learn how to do the study. Learn how to, uh, to search the Scriptures. Learn how to dig into these things and, and read. Just become good readers. The best, the best, what you're doing with the Bible is reading. And you determine meaning by being a good reader. You don't make the meaning. The meaning's there. But a good reader finds the author's meaning. And that's what we want to learn how to do. So that's why I commend people when they come up with... Like like uh, Ryan and I loved Dr. Versaput. And his best compliment that you could ever get from him was, that's an astute reading. <laughs> when he said that to me, I go, oh, I've arrived. Because <laughs> he was teaching us how to read. Now, we'll continue on at this idea of comfort and in the midst of affliction in verse uh, 4. And we'll find that when we are afflicted and we find comfort, God is preparing us for ministry. So you can think about that for our theme. When you are afflicted and you find comfort, God is preparing you to be able to comfort others. And proclaim the hope that you have through the gospel. And, and that's really it. I mean, when people see a Christian suffering very badly, the way this Christian brings glory to God is confess the gospel. Say, so I, I may not make it through this life, but I know, uh, I know I'll, where I'm going. <laughs> and I know I have comfort in the gospel. So be comforted in, in the Lord's word, and we'll see you upstairs. We're going to be finishing Genesis. I'm preaching Genesis 50, the last chapter of Genesis.